Techman Podcast number 370. I am Tim Robertson. I am David Cohen. So usually, um, you know, we talk about this, that, and the other, but this is kind of a sad week for uh, true tech fans, David. Yeah. Uh, co-founder of Microsoft, Paul Allen, passed away. And, you know, we talk about Apple a lot here. Um, but let's not overlook the importance of Paul Allen. And as such, we're going to dedicate our wiki trolling segment uh, to Paul and uh, kind of recount his history a little bit. You know, there's there's going to be a lot of people, well, maybe not a lot, but there's going to be quite a few people listening to this episode, David, who may not even know who he is because he no. left Microsoft very early. So we're, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, and also he was well known as being quite shy and reclusive. So yes. he, he kind of... Um, duck the limelight, whereas Bill Gates was always happy to be the public face of Microsoft. Paul Allen never was, even before he left the company. So, um, yeah, very much an underappreciated man, I think, in tech circles. But actually, you look at his history and you realize um, probably most of what Microsoft did would not have happened without his contribution. But we're going to start at uh, a story that we had kind of left over from last week. I I don't know how we missed this one, David, and it's an interesting story, too. Uh, the title from Ars Technica is Fitbit Data Used to Charge 90-Year-Old Man. What a crazy story. <laughs> so this is one of those situations where um, there was a family argument, uh, and um, unfortunately, a member of the family got um, got murdered during the course of his argument. Yeah, the um, daughter... Well, yeah. the the accused uh, daughter-in-law. That's right. Yeah, a stepdaughter as well. Um, so, anyway, she she was, was a stepdaughter. She was a stepdaughter. Yeah, okay. she's she was she was killed by somebody hitting her over the head with something sharp like an axe. And she was sixty-seven. Yeah. So, um, and the person accused of the crime is her ninety-year-old stepfather. Which is would be an, be bizarre in itself. I mean, you kind of a lot of times you you kind of hope people at, at more advanced age kind of have more mature ways of dealing with things than violence, but um, not always the case. Anyway, the interesting thing from a tech point of view is that um, the police, when they arrived, was, she didn't show up for work. This this lady, and so the police went around to check on her, and then found her. Uh, basically dead. dead at the dining room table um, and uh, the scene had been kind of set up to uh, look like she killed herself by slashing her neck with a knife but in fact um, the the skull wounds kind of Im implied that there was um, more going on than this so anyway um, they and and there were there were uh, attempts to make the place look like it'd been robbed um, yep. but it was all pretty uh, it it was all pretty suspicious to the police so um they spoke to uh the police spoke to her family her 92 year old mother uh, stepmother and uh, mother and, and her 90 year old stepfather uh and the stepfather said yeah he'd been over on the the day of the death and given her a pizza but had not seen her since and he gave a timeline of what he'd done um and the problem is is that the timeline he gave was 
not concurrent with what actually happened. There was some surveillance footage from the area, uh, but not close to the home. But um, the lady concerned was wearing a Fitbit. And this is a, a Fitbit that recorded um, heart data. And it recorded that her heart data at a certain time, according to her phone, because that's where it was synced to, yeah. spiked and then nothing. Yeah, and, and then disappeared. It basically recorded her death. Yep. Um, and, of course, that is all time-stamped. So the police compared the time-stamp of the, of the data with the account that the father-in-law gave. Uh, sorry, and step, video footage of his car. Gave, yeah, and then they found footage of him being parked in the driveway, and basically none of it added up. Um, and uh, they were able to suspect that, in fact, he had been involved with, uh, with killing her. And then that got them a warrant. They were then able to do a search, and then they found more evidence of, um, you know, clothes with blood on and that sort of thing. And so um, he's now been charged with the crime. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and in fact, the, the kind of the summary of the story here is that yeah. while, while he maintained his story while being interviewed, he, he, he was, they left the room and he was left in the interview room talking to himself. And apparently he, he muttered to himself under his breath, I'm done. Which, Several times. Yeah, which basically means he kind of confessed. Um, and it's it's interesting in that, the you know, kind of the Fitbit aspect of it is, is kind of the key piece of evidence that's going to put this guy away. I mean, you could... You can always argue uh, a difference in timelines uh, from surveillance footage and that sort of thing because surveillance footage doesn't necessarily give you a whole picture. It shows where you are, but it doesn't necessarily show what you're doing. Um, whereas uh, with the Fitbit, they now actually have data of, of exactly what was happening in the house at certain times. Uh, and that, you know, is, is pretty strict. That, that together with the other evidence is pretty strong evidence that... The boy done it, I'm afraid. And, uh, you know, I kind of feel sorry for this lady and her family that she was, you know, killed in such a horrific way. But in, I'm kind of glad she was wearing a, fit, a Fitbit because now her murder will be solved when perhaps it might not have been otherwise. Uh, the company that behind Fitbit actually uh, worked with the police. Yeah. Now, there's been a lot of stories over the last few years about uh, securing your phone, um, Apple and Google not not unlocking devices uh, in police investigations. And to a lot of people, that's heralded as um, a win for privacy advocates. That's a good thing. You don't want a company like Apple or Google to unilaterally just help law enforcement. That's a bad thing. And then other people say, why is it a bad thing? It's, It's the police. And so you get the back and forth. But this is a case that um, it's seems pretty clear-cut. Well, not only that, the, the, the data concerned was of the deceased. And, um, you know, right. the, the, the law basically says your right to privacy ends at the time of your death. Yes. Um, so there was no legal problems with accessing this data. I think the difficulty is is that it is a, it is a grey line. And if you're not careful, you end up with... Um, you could easily imagine a situation where the police wanted to prove that you ran away from a crime or what they claim to be a crime, uh, and they want to pull your Fitbit data to show your heart spiking as you run away from a crime, um, and then use that as, as circumstantial evidence that you may have been involved. Um, so, you know, the, there are the privacy angle is important, but it's also important to remember that your, your right to privacy, privacy ends when you do. Next story, 
Another one from Ars Technica. We like that website, by the way. Yeah. For tech, it's a really good one. Well, the, the thing is, is that they they tend to not only report on something, but also talk about the ramifications of it, which is kind of more interesting to guys like you and I than, you know, somewhere like The Verge or something that just likes to report a headline and state some facts. Right. We like to delve a little bit deeper with our opinion on it. Yeah. Um, what developers say Apple needs to do to make the Apple TV a gaming console? Now, I've got a, a here's my issue with this, David. When Apple first announced the new generation of Apple TVs, and it may be getting another update here this month, because Apple just announced a uh, event. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people kind of made a big deal that, wow, the Apple TV is going to now be a gaming platform. But, yeah. And some people even went to so far as could it could it compete with the you know yeah. a PlayStation or Microsoft? I remember or, you I, were I remember you were quite bullish about games coming to Apple TV. I was. I thought this could be a really good thing, um, simply from the perspective of how many people are playing games on their iPads and their iPhones, and the Apple TV is running the same operating system obsessively. Uh, port some of those games, give it a good controller, and now they're home video games, and it's got a, be- a built-in yeah. ecosystem with very little work to have yeah, to translate yeah. it. But there was a fairly important sentence you included in that statement yep. that didn't come true. Yeah, and that is the controller. Yeah. Uh, your interaction between whatever game you're playing and the device you're using to control your character or whatever you're doing, um, you know, if it's a if it's an iPad, you're touching the screen. You're directly touching the play field. On a PS4 or an Xbox or something like that, you've got the controller, and then you're directly controlling your person or whatever on the screen with the controller. For the Apple TV, Apple really did expect people to use the remote control as a controller, and they half-heartedly said, okay, these these uh, controllers will be supported. Um, well, initially, but it was, initially they didn't. They initially right. said any game that came on the Apple TV platform had to be able to use the remote as a controller. Um, right, and it's a terrible controller. It's a terrible... Well, to be honest with you, we've never talked about this before, but the Apple TV remote is a terrible remote. Oh, it is. It's a terrible device generally. It is the epitome of what of people often accuse Apple of being, which is form over function. It, is, yep. it looks very nice. It's very well designed. It's very cool. It's also completely, utterly bloody useless. Yep. Yep. Pick the I thing mean, up. Mo- you don't know which way to hold it up if you're not looking at it. Uh, you can't find the buttons. They're non-tactile. Uh, yep. It's got a very sensitive touch surface on it that's not well differentiated from the rest of it, so it's easy to have false inputs. Um, it's too small. It's too easy to lose. Uh, it has great battery life, and yeah, but you've got to recharge it with a lightning cable that doesn't come with the Apple TV. So if you don't have an iPhone, you're kind of screwed. There's a whole load of things pro- wrong with it. It it was a product whose core function to show you video content in your living room is great, but it's kind of tied to Apple's own content. It will play somewhat nicely with other content. Once they open it up to developers for stuff like Netflix, it became much more useful. Mm-hmm. But even so, the Apple TV is a joke compared to the Roku 
or uh, Amazon's platform, or to be honest, even Plex. Plex is much better than the Apple program yeah. or Apple TV. So they're kind of an also-ran, I thought, wrongly, and I should have known better because Apple's never been friendly to gamers, ever. Well, way back in the day they were, but that's so long ago that most people listen to this don't even remember that. Um, and I'm talking 25 years ago. It, it, this was not the device to try to turn into some kind of a faux gaming platform. Well, they could have done. I think the opportunity was there. Had they... I don't think they even have needed to do much more work than they actually did. But the thing is, they didn't even do the basics. First of all, right. the whole thing about the remote was a non-starter. Recognize you, you either design a, a remote that's suitable for gaming as well as everything else and include it in the box, or you don't. But what right. you don't do is you is you impose a a weak remote on game developers and say you must be able to work with this device. This is a device that, that is nothing like the uh, interfaces that you use with the iPhone, the iPad. If they'd given you a, a you know kind of a, a touch sensitive sheet of glass in there, then at least you could have said, well, you know, you know so use the same controls you use on the iPad, uh, and people wouldn't have liked it very much, but it probably would have been a better solution than what what they actually offered. Um, yep. It supports the um, uh, made for I, the MFI controller standard that Apple has, which is another thing that's really under-supported by Apple. Yep. You know, they don't encourage it. It's a great system. It's better than systems on other platforms because, like all things Apple, it just kind of works. Um, and you know what I have? But they don't whole, promote it at all. They don't all. promote it. They don't um, – in fact, the last time I was in an Apple store, you could you had to look pretty hard to even find an MFI controller. Yep. They, don't, they don't advertise it. They don't um, – despite the fact they push games on the App Store, they don't promote MFI support. Um, and the thing is, there are a lot of games that actually are better on the on the iPad or the iPhone with with a controller. Yeah. Um, and that the problem is because they have this kind of well, for a start, they don't make their own first party controller. Um, well, that's where it stops and starts right there for me. Yeah. You can't. No gamer can seriously consider the Apple TV a platform when Apple doesn't even make a controller. When you think of the Xbox, the PlayStation. The Nintendo, um, it's about the controllers. That's your interaction. Most people who have an Xbox use an Xbox controller. Most people who have a PlayStation use a PlayStation controller. Why? Because they're very good controllers. Yeah. They're uh, very good. And look, in fact, the third-party ones are junky compared to the, yeah. the one that comes in the box. Uh, and not only that, look at the current darling of the TV gaming setup, which is the Nintendo Switch. Yeah. One of the prime factors behind the success of that platform is the incredible quality and innovation they've put in the controller setup. Yeah, because it, and it's twofold with the Switch. You pull the little uh, controllers off each either side of the Switch's screen and put it in this little dongle, basically that comes with the Switch. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a standalone controller, or you can buy Nintendo's Pro controller, which is extremely well made. Yeah. So when you're playing the Switch on the TV, obviously you're not touching the screen, so you got to use a controller. Yeah. It just works much better. And those controllers it, have the sort of stuff you find in the iPhone in terms of their ability to motion sense and understand yep. where they are in space, which means that can be used as part of the game as well if you want yep. to. 
Um, look, it's it's all much more well thought out, and this is from Nintendo, who who. You know, when it comes to physical stuff, sometimes it's been a little bit janky. One of the great things about the Switch is the actual quality of the controllers and also the way they slide on, on onto and off the device is incredibly high quality. It's an engineering marvel. It, it, and I think that yeah. you could say the same thing about the PS4 and the Xbox One. Yeah. They really are. I don't care if you play them or not. Just from an engineering standpoint, when you look at the build quality of not just the consoles, but the controllers. Yeah. It's the whole package. They're uh, all fantastic. Yeah. And then you look at the Apple TV, and you're supposed to use this tiny little remote as a controller. Yeah. It's a joke. And and for the price they charge for the Apple TV, there's no reason they yeah. couldn't include a decent controller in it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's a, that's the one aspect that I think a lot of you know people who are big fans of the Apple TV tend to gloss over. The Apple TV is by far one of the most expensive set-top boxes out there, and it's the least capable it's yeah. a, it's I, I don't get it. Why wouldn't Apple make this better if you're going to no. say it's a gaming machine? I mean, the remote is terrible. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, the design is uninspiring. It's the same design they've had for a decade now. Well, the th- not only that, the old the old remotes were better because they had better physical buttons on. They certainly didn't, no. you know, inadvertently activate uh, fast forward or rewind right. when you accidentally touch the thing because it was in your lap. Most people who are diehard Apple TV users, though, will be quick to point out, and I'm one of them, although I'm not a diehard user, I've got three Apple TVs and we don't use any of them. Well, one of them is occasionally used in the living room. But you don't use the Apple remote. You use an Apple app remote on your phone well because that yeah. works a lot better it does but the thing is is that not everybody has an iphone for a start um and secondly well um, i said hi, uh, hardcore apple yeah. tv user. if you're a hardcore apple tv user you have an iphone yeah that's but well i i'm a hardcore i'm a hardcore uh, apple user and i have an iphone and i never use the remote app i always use the uh, physical remote for our apple and i would TV. ask why because it, the the one on the phone works a thousand times better it yeah, really it, does it does but the thing is is the, the whole point about the apple tv is it's a shared device our one is in the kitchen hooked up to the tv we have in the kitchen the kids use it my wife uses it and i use it and so having it having it pinned to one phone is no good to us <laughs> you know you need to have yeah. something there and then and that this is this is part of the problem with the apple tv as a, as a whole concept i don't think apple has ever really thought about what it's for Right. They've not focused on that at all. And they had a prime opportunity with the gaming. They, you know, they, they're now apparently, and have been for the last two years, scrabbling around trying to sign content deals to launch some um, Netflix killing uh, Apple TV or Apple yeah. media service. Now, you know what? The best way to make that successful would have, would have been to have the Trojan horse of the Apple TV in plenty of living rooms. You could have done that if you'd have made it a strong games platform because kids buy things for games yeah uh, and instead what you have is because because the gaming support is almost like an afterthought on the apple tv even if you get games i own loads of games that have apple tv versions we never load them on the apple tv because everybody right. plays them on on their ipads or iphones right yeah? it's a subbar experience subpar exactly. experience on the apple tv why would you want to play a, a crappy version of the same game that you can just pick up on your phone and play right now yeah I mean, there is, don't get me wrong, there is a convenience aspect of the fact that 
you know, you can play it on your device and you can go and do that whenever you want. You're not tying up the TV and all that sort of thing. But you know what? That's a problem that the Switch managed to solve. So, yep. you know, this is, this is really an issue. You look at the Switch and you think, you know what? At that's, the Switch represents Apple's missed opportunity. Yeah. Right. You know what should be the Apple TV? It should be a dock that you can put your you iPad put your or iPad. your final. Exactly. Phone. Yeah. That's what it should be. Yeah. And then for to make it a gaming platform, you build a really nice seventy dollar controller. Yeah. Exactly. And done. And you, and You're you pro- done. And you promote the hell out of it. Absolutely. You basically, say anybody, any kid who's got a phone or an iPad, <laughs> this is what they also want. Yep. Yeah. And also, oh by the way, all the studios and all these places you're trying to make deals with. Well, your platform is the iPhone. Yeah. In the home, on the go, it, it doesn't distinguish. Yeah, exactly. And, and you get it, that whole thing you get with the Switch as well, whereas you can play the game at home on your TV and then pick it yep. up and go out and carry on on the bus. You know? Absolutely. So the Apple TV should, as far as David or I and I are concerned, should not exist. It should just be an app on the phone with a dock. That's it. That's all they need, David. Yeah. That's all they need. Yeah. But... I, I don't understand why the Apple TV, as it is right now, exists. It's a stupid product that is a huge missed opportunity. And let's be honest, the Apple TV has been around a long time. Yeah. That, that, I had the original one where it had a hard drive built in it. Yeah. The, pro- the problem is at the moment, the Apple TV basically exists just so that, you know what, the, the, the one thing we mostly use our Apple TV for at home is to throw media from the iPad or the iPhone onto the TV. Exactly, again, it's acting it's, like a portal or a, a, a Wi-Fi or a, yeah, a dock, exa- if you will. It's acting like a like a, a bridge. What's the Google thing they do? The thirty dollars yeah, Chromecast. Thing. Chromecast. It's basically acting like an Apple version of that. It, yep. You know, we we all right. Occasionally, we run the iPlayer on it and this, that, and the other. But most of the time, it's just easier to pick up uh, an iPad or an iPhone and, and throw the content on from there. Mm-hmm. So it. it it doesn't really justify its expense. I've got to be honest. I wouldn't even have one. I hadn't won one for free uh, last year. Yeah, so I, it's, you know. it's the one Apple product I have, the new one anyways, that's yeah. been out for, what, three years now? Yeah. It's the one Apple product I have zero, and I don't mean zero interest. Even when I was kind of decrying the Apple Watch for a while when you got one, yeah, I, there was still a good 10 20% of me that still kind of wanted it. But the Apple TV, I, to me, it's a joke. It's an also-ran. It, yeah. I don't understand the placement of the product. I don't understand the the demographics that people think Apple thinks is going to use this. Do they not see what the competition is doing? I mean, all you got to do is look at what Amazon's doing and realizing how bad the Apple TV is a joke. Yeah. I mean, because what? how much could you get a Fire Stick for? 30 bucks? Yep, exactly. And a Roku is not much more. And, and, the, and, and the remotes are better for both of those yeah, devices. And, and to be honest with you, in terms of playing content on TV, half the time you don't even need those boxes anymore. You can right. just run it straight off the TV. Net- yeah, it's got Netflix smart, is on smart pro- apps. Yeah, Netflix is on pretty much any, everything. Certainly in the UK, BBC iPlayer, which is a big one here in the UK, is on pretty much everything. And want your own content? You don't want to have to go through that? Well, that's Plex. You yeah. can download Plex to almost any smart TV that doesn't already have it, but, and then yeah. Plex is free on your desktop. And also, as well, most of these smart TVs will take a USB stick. And yep. so anybody who's slightly tech-savvy can just put their own content onto that and stick it in the in the back of the TV. Yeah, so Apple is... It's not that they're missing the boat. The boat's already left. Apple already lost this battle, unless they come out with a truly innovative idea. 
Yeah, I, and I think our idea would probably be the best idea they, they could possibly do. I, th- a dock yeah. for the iOS devices. I think it's worse than that. I think Apple not so much missed the boat is they're building the wrong boat. They are building a you know a a, a seven sheet rigging man of war sailing ship with masts and wooden and wooden decks and sails and everything like that, whereas all the competition are, have already moved on to uh, dreadnoughts. You know, I think that's where they are. They are not not so much le- uh, also around. They're, they're just left behind, and the product they're building is a product answering a question nobody's answering asking today. The, here's the, uh, the flip side of this: is does Apple even need to be in that business? I would argue no. I would argue that I don't see Roku making a phone. You know, do what you do well and stay to that one thing. Yeah, but they won't. stop trying to yeah. branch out to all these other areas that you're subpar and that you just ignore forever. They're, they're worried, though. They're worried about getting their platforms being cut out of the media. That's why they're developing their own. That's their strategy. Because let's face it, you can't get um, you can't get Amazon Prime. You know, you struggle to get Amazon Prime on your um, on your Apple TV. You know, there was there's been issues in the past. The app went away and then it came back and and all of that sort of thing. That could happen with Netflix. Hell, Amazon could buy Netflix or one of the big studios could buy Netflix. That could happen one day. And at that point, all of a sudden, the strategy of having the Netflix app on every single platform going could go away because it could become every single platform going except for Apple. I think it'd be the other way around. I think Netflix will end up buying other studios. Maybe, but the point the point is is that strategies can change, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden people can. And this has happened to Apple before. Remember, yes. it's happened in the music business. People can say, you know what, Apple's too dominant, so we're just not going to play with them. And then Apple is left having to do things on its own, and that's what it's worried about. Because yeah, they, people still don't talk about when it comes to streaming music services. Nobody and none of the press and none of the people I ever talked to ever talk about Apple Music. Yeah. It's an also ran. But this is the problem that Apple has is that their business is so focused on selling innovative, attractive hardware products that people want to use that they've never been good at tying the software services to the hardware. They they've never they've never been good iCloud anyone? Yeah, iCloud, um, Apple Music, all of these sorts of things. The only the only place they ever got it right was the uh, was the iTunes Music Store and that happened, and, and and the App Store and both of but, those things kind of happened by accident. And and that was fifteen years ago. Yeah, you know, I mean, but, but even with the App Store, it, you know what the uh, the App Store for the phone could have been the same because yes. basically, first of all, Apple didn't want to do it. Then they reluctantly did it. Yeah, and then when they first did it, they had all sorts of weird rules and everything like that. And they basically, they made it very Apple-like, which basically meant it was all in Apple's interest and it was kind of hard for everyone else. Now, fortunately for them, because it was first in that space, the iPhone was so successful that the App Store virtually couldn't fail despite what they did. But they they had that same kind of lackadaisical, lackluster view for a long time. Um, and this is the same approach they've taken with this. And, the, and and I think they do need to change that. They need to start launching good services that they really promote and support beyond the launch alongside their hardware products so that they actually have an ecosystem. This is something Amazon understands very well. It's exactly. something Google starts, it understands very well and is starting to. And it's certainly stuff that Netflix understands. You know, because yeah, Netflix, uh, that's is, the thing Netflix with ne- is, is all everywhere. service, is, is all service and no hardware. 
right? So just in the same way you can make a beautiful hardware product that people lust after and must have, which Apple is very good at, you can also make a service that people desperately want and once they get can't give up. And you know what? That's Netflix in a nutshell. Yep. In fact, I started watching the new season of Daredevil this morning. Yeah? Season three. Oh, I'm just so excited. And they're Look. bringing the Kingpin back and... Bullseye is going to be in it, and oh, it looks good. We had we've had we had Amazon Prime Video for about three years. And, you know, we watched a lot of stuff on it and everything. But I tell you, uh, and I use my my good lady wife as a barometer for these sorts of things because, well, she's she's and certainly has tech interest. She's nowhere near like like my interest in it. But when she got Netflix, it was like I turned on a fire hose and pointed it in her face. She could not drink it fast enough. Yeah. She just, you know, the first thing she wants to do whenever she's close to the TV where we have a Netflix everything set up kind of seamlessly for her is turn it on and watch it. It's the first. She will not go to broadcast TV or anything else. She'll go straight to Netflix and she'll find something to watch. Did you just make an al- analogy about spraying your wife in the face with a big hose? I certainly did not. I think you must have heard <laughs> Good thing that wasn't recorded. Yeah, exactly. Yes, <laughs> you may you may say that I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> we do, <laughs> we do want to thank our sponsor uh, OWC. Oh, that's uh, right. Their... Yeah, associate the sponsor with that piece of filth now. <laughs> uh, OWC's Oktoberfest is going on, David. They've got this is awesome. I don't need a hard drive. I don't need any more backups. I'm set. But if I did, I would be all over this deal. Five terabyte Toshiba hard drive. Now this is an internal, an internal three and a half inch drive. But of course, pair this with like you know an external case, or um, you know one of my uh, dual disk drive things. Yep. One hundred and thirty eight bucks. What? One hundred thirty eight bucks. One hundred thirty eight dollars for five terabyte. You know what? And this is a seventy two hundred RPM too. We, we are living in magic times, my friend. That's that's unbelievable amount of storage. Five tera. I could take almost all my content right now, including all my uh, media files, my music library, my mo- movies library, all my pictures, everything, and I could fit it all on a five terabyte drive. But hell, <laughs> back when we started, you probably got the whole internet on that thing. Oh yeah? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Easily. Yeah, wow. The internet would have been, you know, an OWC dock with this thing stuck in it, and everyone's mm. just pounding the heck out of it. Five terabytes, um, you start your own Netflix. <laughs> I mean, for $200, you can pick up the USB 3 dual dock drive and this five terabyte hard drive. Yeah. You can pick up both of them. That is... 200 bucks. That is awesome. Yeah. So we want to think... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, if you... If you're worried about backups and you have lots of computers in your house, this is the sort of thing you want. You back everything up to there. Oh, absolutely. And then you buy then you buy another one so that you can back up. So you can back up your backup. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, off-site backup is the way to go. Yeah. Um, We want to thank our sponsor OWC. Uh, Make sure you visit them. Go to macsales.com or you can go to mymac.com or techfanpodcast.com and follow the link over. And uh, I'm going to link to the Oktoberfest again and. Pick up some cool tech stuff. David, we did get some feedback last week, and uh, I like this one from uh, from Steve. From Steve, he goes. This is Steve Stavisky. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Steve. Yes. He says, 
Hi, Tim and David. Listening to the CompuServe episode made me think of my earliest encounter with computers and telephones. My neighbour's dad, when I was a kid in the 70s in New Jersey, was an engineer at Bell Labs, which I recommend for a future wiki trolling, by the way. Oh, I agree, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. And he did exactly what you described in the episode when you were talking about companies or universities making sure as many people as possible had terminals. He may have been one of the first telecommuters, come to think of it. The company gave him a terminal which looked a lot like a typewriter with two suction cups on the back you put that telephone handset into as its modem. And Mr. L would spend hours and hours working on stuff. I don't know, I was eight. <laughs> he, <laughs> he did, however, every once in a while on a weekend, call us boys to his basement office and let us play a game of Yahtzee on the terminal. It was the coolest thing and probably what sparked my interest in tech. We waited and waited and waited to see what each dice roll came back as when the dot matrix would start scanning back and <laughs> forth, giving a graphical representation of the dice. Each game took hours and it was crazy exciting, futuristic fun. Thanks for the episode. I hadn't thought about those cherished Sundays for years. Steve Stavisky. Thanks for that, Steve. Wow. I, I, you know, when I think of older modems, I still think of the Hayes and, and uh, yeah. Global Village. But no, I, I do remember the suction cups you would actually put on a, a telephone, and that was the modem. Uh, right, heck, yeah. if you go go watch the movie War Games, and you'll see exactly what you we're know talking what? about. You know, when we were talking about this the other week, I was thinking I must show Alexander War Games first of all because it's I still think it's a great movie. Um, you know, it's it's one of those. It's a little bit cheesy nowadays, but it, you know yeah. the idea of inadvertently getting into um, war, war making computers, I still think is a is a great idea. Um, and and secondly, it it showcases all that technology that was, you know, was the norm in the early 80s, which nowadays, yeah, our kids are going to look at and, and it's going to be like kind of retro steampunk science fiction. You know, the, the fact that he, uh, I mean, it, the, the very name war dialing, which is what David Lightman was doing in that in that film, where he was yep. basically pinging numbers with his modem, trying to find a computer right. on the other end. That's where the name war dialing came from, from war games. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's... Um it's a quaint movie. I don't think the there's parts of it that I enjoy to this day, but I, I can't really watch it. It's just too. I don't know. Two of its time. I, yeah, I t- exactly. I tell you what, though, those um, graphical video displays that they had showing all the uh, missiles and everything like that. There's no way that the U.S. Army had anything like that in the early eighties. <laughs> I bet they still had paper maps with those. Um, you know, those little rockets that they used to push across the map with a stick. <laughs> well, I, as you know, or maybe you don't remember, um, I was doing, uh, oh gosh, what year was this? 98? 97, 98, 99, somewhere in there, before I became an IT manager. Um, I worked at uh, a company and uh, we were directly working with the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. And we had this giant call room, and they had one of the maps that you see in war, war games, mm-hmm. and it was very much like that movie. I yeah. mean, it was a gigantic wall of one screen. Obviously, it was custom built for them, but I'm talking uh, two and a half stories tall. I mean, this thing was gigantic. Yeah, it but was I bet amazing. It, surely it didn't have the missile command kind of moving graphics <clears> on it. <throat> they could have easily. I mean, it was a screen. 
um, it showed uh, a map of the world. And when a phone call came in, it would pop up on the map where that phone call is coming in from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'd see stuff. For, I can't really talk about what some of it was. But you see, like, this one's coming in from Vietnam or Southeast Asia. Um, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And the person in the control room could overlay other graphics on top of it if they wanted to. Or they could zoom up into a certain area. It was, uh, as an IT enthusiast or a tech enthusiast, I loved it. I could have sat in there for hours looking at that screen. It was just fascinating. So could they have had the missile command type of graphics? Yeah, easily. No problem. Yeah. And you got to remember what Cheyenne Mountain back in the day would have been like. I mean, I bet it was amazing. I bet I would bet you that that the, the depiction in that movie was nowhere close to what it actually was like. Well, you think it was better than what was in the movie? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, I don't remember how much the money the the U.S. government at that time was spending on the Cold War, yeah. man. Yeah, of course. Um, they also have the Stargate underneath there as well. So, yeah, that's what I'd really <laughs> want to see. Yep, me too. <laughs> So, you see they're making a new Stargate movie? Uh, you know, I've heard rumors about this for a while. Um, I I have mixed feelings about that. I know that um, uh, Emmerich and whatever the other guy is, the guys who did the original Stargate movie, which, when you go out and watch it now, is, is not... So a, bad. It's not a great movie, no. They really no. take a very, very cool idea and completely, utterly waste it. Um and so I, bad acting, really yeah. bad CGI. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, it's bad on every level. Yeah, and and so I, I always really enjoyed the Stargate TV series. Went went for ten years, and you know it had its good bits and its. Oh, no, sorry. No, I'm I'm. We're talking about two different things. Not Stargate. Oh. Um, well, I was talking about Stargate. That's the thing that's on that's based on the Cheyenne Mountain in the t- in the movie in the TV show. Uh, no, this uh, the one I'm thinking of is. Um, Oh boy, where he lives in a trailer park and he plays a video game oh, and the guy comes down the to find car. The last starfighter. The last starfighter, right, that's what okay. I'm talking about. All right, now yeah. now that is a more interesting topic. Um I love that movie. I <laughs> Oh, it's so bad. It is so bad, but you know what again, I love the idea of um using video games as a recruitment engine. I I thought, you know Oh, I thought that was very yeah. clever. And, and I, you know, it was one of the first uh, the ship in that in that movie I thought was incredibly cool, and it was one of the first movies that used CGI for the special effects instead of um, in, instead of models. So even though you can really tell nowadays how awful the CGI is, um, it was groundbreaking at the time. Did you so, see someone had updated the CGI on YouTube for no. that movie? Yeah, oh. it looks a lot. It's still a little bit cheesy. Yeah, you could tell he did it on his Commodore sixty four or something. Um, but well, Mac Plus maybe. But yeah, he upgraded the the updated the graphics, the CGI, and it did look better. But it's still he kind of stays true to that eighties cheese in it. Yeah, I would love it if someone did the full treatment on it. Leave leave everything else. Just update all the cgi in it to make it badass like the whole big final battle thing was just so limp well yeah i mean you you always you could always tell that they basically uh they did it that way for the budget (laughs) it was like because the the, without giving any spoilers away um basically the final battle yeah let's not let's not spoil a movie from 82 
Yeah, well, some people may not have seen it and want to go and find it now. But basically, they, they kind of they use a, um, a, a MacGuffin to right. uh, to get out of the fact that they don't have to have a, a one versus many final space battle. <laughs> it was so bad. Yeah. You know, yeah, but so I, 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 I don't know why that movie made a, such an impression on me, but it really did. I think we might have had the novelization at home and I might have read it quite a lot. So. I think a novelization of that would have been pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty just good. The so. acting was just make, so bad. You're saying they're going to make it again? Yeah, there's rumors going around now that that's a movie that they're going to uh, you know what? update, and that's uh, that's a movie that I actually think I don't mind them remaking that. I'll be oh, honest. Oh, I do. You know, because I know how they'll do it. They'll do it in they'll do it in the same way they do all of these kind of young adult shows now, with uh, too much angst and um, you know too many issues for the for the kid to resolve. And no, I'm I'm not really I'm, I'm I don't think they'll do that well. What I would do it is in the vein of the relaunched Star Trek movie, yeah. something like that. Yeah. I think that would work extremely well. Uh, didn't um, Ernest Klein, who who wrote Ready Player One, um, isn't his isn't his next book basically re- a remake of a kind of a retreatment of the last Starfighter story? Have you read it? I, I no, I haven't. Um, I know which one you're talking about, Andromeda or something. Uh, Armada, like that. I think it's called. Armada, yeah. yeah. And basically, that's, you know, that's my understanding. Yeah, he he he's trained in video games, and he finds that um, that means that he's the only person on the planet who can defend against an invading space force. It's yeah. the same movies, you know. Yeah, I know they're making it into a movie, so. Yeah. Did you just call it the last Starfighter? Yeah, I I just watched Ready Player One recently. I've not seen it before. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've seen it twice. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. I watched it the first time. I was too tired, and then I watched it again a couple months later, and uh, I don't even think it was that long later. Yeah. But I watched it twice. It's okay. Um, it's I, it, it tries too hard to go the nostalgia route, mm-hmm. which I don't mind, except they got it wrong a lot of times. Yeah. And, you know, they they really needed the licenses. Uh, for instance, in the book, they they describe the IOI guys. Mm-hmm. Well, they were called the IOI guys because that's what was on the back of the stormtrooper uniforms. Yeah, he didn't call them stormtroopers, but in your mind, the way he describes them, it's stormtroopers. Yeah, they should have been able to get the license and just do it correctly. You should have saw the Millennium Falcon because that was a thing. Yeah. Um, any if it's going to be dripping with nostalgia and there's no Star Wars in it, there's no Star Trek in it, please. Yeah, you know it's, it's like meh. And and the uh, he's more clever in the book in coming up with what the clues mean. Where once he figures these things out in the movie, you're just like, all right, they've been doing this for how long and no one figured that out. That's yeah, but well, that's that's typical script dumbing down. That is, isn't it? There's no nuance. It was just like. Oh well, I, I've just figured. I've just seen this, and it and it makes me think that. And and you know, there was no yeah, there was no cleverness to it at all. It was like, right. It was like this is the world's dumbest puzzle ever. Right. And then the the girl that he falls in love with in the movie. Yeah. In the book, she's much more kind of disfigured. Yeah. This this thing on her face, this birthmark, really does look bad. And in the movie, this girl's all angst because. 
She's got this mark. She don't take any. She's gorgeous with a little bit of a tiny birth. Oh, the thing is, you don't it's, even. It's a joke. Until she points the birthmark out, you don't even notice it was there. Yeah. You're like, come on. Really? So the book is so much better. I actually read the book when I was at OWC traveling a lot. And I finished it in L.A. right downtown. So that I, when I think of that book now, I think of, you know, being in that area for the Adobe Mac show. Um I like the book a lot better than the movie. Just I'll leave it at that. Okay. Let's uh, move on to our wiki trolling. And unfortunately, it's kind of a, a sad one. As we were talking about at the beginning of the show, Paul Allen passed away. And maybe a lot of people don't know this, but it was actually Paul Allen who named Microsoft. He named it Micro-Soft. That was the original name of the company, and then they just kind of shortened it to what we know today. But it was Paul convincing his high school friend, who was actually two years behind him in school, um, to leave college to start Microsoft. They became friends uh, in elementary or in uh, high school because they had a shared love of computers, and you know. When we think of Microsoft today and in that time frame, we think of Bill Gates. Um, and that's unfair because when we think of Apple back in that day, we think of Steve, the two Steves. That's right. You know, we don't think of the old Apple as, well, that was Steve Jobs. We give equal weight to Steve Wozniak because it was the two of them together that made Apple and their initial products what they were, the the basis for the company, the yeah. vision for the company. And but, that's what Microsoft was. But the it was Paul yeah. Allen and Bill Gates. The difference, is, the difference between them is that Steve Wozniak, when he left, and they kind of left in similar circumstances, Paul Allen got cancer, he yeah. got uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and so he decided he didn't want to work anymore. Uh, and um, it was a variation of lymphoma that, that unfortunately led to his passing this week. But he had a good run after getting that in, uh, what, 1981, something like that. So Exactly. I mean, uh, think about getting cancer in 1981, and he lived until 2018. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, but uh, Steve Wozniak left Apple after having a plane crash. Um, and um, the difference is that Wozniak kind of did not withdraw from public life. Um, and also he kept a lot of contacts with people still at Apple who were involved in writing the history of Apple. Whereas, um, you know, Paul Allen just kind of did his own thing. And he wasn't, as, as I said at the beginning, he he wasn't interested. He was quite shy. Um, and he certainly wasn't interested in having his historical significance noted. Uh, and consequently, he was kind of gradually forgotten from the record. And, and everything... A lot of the things that were associated with him were attributed to Bill Gates. Exactly, um, and that's not fair. Yeah, because, you know, Paul Allen, first of all, it was Paul Allen's idea after seeing the Altair to say to, to convince Bill Gates, you know what, we should give up school and we should go and write a basic for this. It was his idea. Yep. Yeah? Yep. He talked Bill Gates into it. Secondly, when the DOS opportunity came along, this is this is what made Microsoft when they wrote the 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 uh, disk operating system for the IBM PC, well, the, you know IBM were, they they had a meeting with Gary killed all at CPM and Gary kind of blown them off because he was a bit of a fool, um, and so they were look they came, they went to Albuquerque to see Bill Gates and they said we want uh, an operating system we need something quick because we're building this computer from off the shelf parts and we're going to have it out by Christmas, and uh, <laughs> Bill Gates said 
yeah, we can do that, no problem at all. And they signed a deal, and then after IBM left, Bill Gates said, what the hell are we going to do now? We don't have one. And it was it was Paul Allen who went out and found the system that they bought from some guy for a pittance that they turned, yeah. that they turned into MS-DOS and became the default operating system for the entire PC revolution. You know, because Windows was built on top of it. The original Windows was built on top of DOS. And Windows, even Windows 95 had kind of a, a nub of DOS underneath it. It was only really around about uh, 2000, when Windows 2000 came out, that kind of DOS went away. And that was all down to Paul Allen. He was also, uh, a, a, by all accounts, an absolute crackerjack programmer. Probably better than Bill Gates was. So this guy was instrumental in turning Microsoft into a, a you know a multi-million dollar and multi-multi-billionaire uh, billion dollar company. And interesting enough, you read his history, and much as uh, Steve Jobs uh, diddled Steve Wozniak out of uh, his his rightful um, shareholdings and that sort of thing, Bill Gates tried to do exactly the same thing to to uh, to Paul Allen. Uh, fortunately, this time Paul Allen wasn't having any of it and held on to his stock, and consequently became. Uh, a many multi-billionaire uh, and spent the rest of his life kind of giving that money away and doing cool things. <laughs> you know? Gates reportedly asked Allen to give him some of his shares to compensate for the higher amount of work being performed by Gates. According to Allen, Gates said since he did almost everything on basic, the company should be split 60-40 in his favor. Allen agreed to this arrangement, which Gates later attempted to amend to 64-36. to in 1983, Gates tried to buy Allen out at $5 a share. However, Allen refused and left the company with his share intact. His shares intact. This proved critical to Allen's becoming a billionaire after Microsoft went public. Yeah. Now, some people will say, "See, that's that's why people didn't like Bill Gates. He did this kind of crap." Well, we weren't there at the time. We don't know what the involvement of these two guys were in the company. I mean, he he did initially agree to the sixty forty, so that suggests that Bill Gates probably did most of the programming work. Um, but I don't know. It's it's one of those things that I, I hate because these guys remained friends. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, it looks bad in hindsight when you see exactly. the potential losses that Paul Allen could have made if he'd sold his shareholding. Yeah. yeah, but there was no there was no guarantee that that well, was going to well, happen. I d- I d- not only was there no guarantee, I'm sure most of them had no concept it was going to turn out like that. Just in the same way that people are always digging, um, what's the name of the guy, Ron, the, the silent third partner at Apple who cashed out very quickly. Uh, you know the guy I mean. Ron mm-hmm. somebody, yeah? And everyone goes, yep. oh, well, he gave up a fortune. It's like, well, yeah, at the time he needed the cash and he didn't think Apple was going anywhere. Nobody in their right mind would say, you know what? I can get however much it is now for this, sh- for this cash holding. It's, say it's, if I had shares now and somebody came to me and said, those shares are worth 5,000 pounds, but I'll, you know what? I'll give you, uh, 20,000 pounds for them and then take them off your hands. Now I, I might sit there and think, Oh, well maybe they'll be worth more than 20,000 pounds going forward. Yeah, but that's 20,000 right there. <laughs> but it's 20, right now, 20,000 pounds. Yeah. Versus, a notional nothing and you know what it's much easier to say no if you happen to have a time machine and know that in five, 10 years in the future that shareholding is going to be worth uh, 20 million pounds but you know what most shareholdings don't turn out like that so anyway yeah I think I think that's overblown really I think I think it's one of those corporate myths and Paul Allen anyway he held, held on to his shareholding he did great things with it 
um, he did some really great things with it. And you know what I love about reading, reading. You know, sometimes you 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 kind of you hear about people, and it seems like lots and lots of money makes them really unhappy. But yep. This, what Paul Allen, what's what's kind of cool about what he did is it's very clear that while he gave a lot of money away to things that he was committed to and interested in, he also spent a lot of money doing things that he just thought were he thought were cool and they weren't frivolously cool. They were things that was going to potentially change the world. So you know, being involved in Spaceship One, which is uh, you know the the privatization of space, is something that he yep. was involved in way ahead of this time and that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, way way before people like Elon Musk or um, or Jeff, Jeff Bezos, Bezos were thinking about it. You know, he he's he's invested. He, he set up a. a, a Capital Investment Group, which has done all sorts of investments in in new companies in Silicon Valley. You know, he's done he's did a lot of work in sports. He bought the Seattle Seahawks, um, brought them back. Well, let's stop there for a minute. I mean, his sports team ownership is how a lot of people actually think of Paul Allen because that's kind of what he's known for to a lot of people. Sports is much more public than you know his Spaceship One stuff and his venture capitalist endeavors the portland portland trailblazers was the first big team he bought in 1988 uh this was a team that was kind of the butt end of the nba and i'm not a i'm not a a basketball fan by any stretch of the imagination uh but he was instrumental in in taking this in his hometown portland yeah um and and purchasing them for 70 million dollars which to you and i are is a lot of money but I mean, it's they're they're worth nine hundred forty million dollars now. So he he took this team and he did something with it. He was an active owner. Yep. And you know he you don't overlook that. That would that's not a small thing. And then to up it one more step, he bought the Seattle Seahawks because at the time back in ninety six, um, and this is you know what eight years after he bought the Trailblazers. Uh, the former owner was threatening to move him to Los Angeles. Yeah. It was going to be the LA Seahawks. And, you know, this is his hometown. This is Seattle. This is Portland. This is where he's from. So he bought them. Seattle, for many years, was the butt end of the NFL, just like the Portland Trailblazers. Nobody, if your team was going to fight, fight, was going to play against the Seahawks, it's going to be a win. Yeah. I mean, they were just, they were just never a good team. And uh, he turned them around. Well, you know, yeah, he, I mean, he hired the right people. Not not only did he hire the right people, I, I think he, he really committed. And this is a team that subsequently went on to two Super two Super Bowls, winning one of them. three Super Bowls. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's it's uh, I, I think it's 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 a model demonstration of of how. You can invest money wisely, and you can look yeah. look for your return, and you can look for um, look for gains and everything like that. But also, you can you can recognise the importance of some of these things to the communities they live in. And I think this is a hallmark hallmark of a lot of his philanthropy is there are whole areas of places like Portland and Seattle that basically he was instrumental in getting redeveloped around his properties and around his businesses. Um, and and then. When you get into the philanthropy stuff, he's personally spent hundreds of million dollars on the fight on uh, against Ebola in Africa. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a great man. Yeah. He really is. Uh, and, he was. And, well, he left a lot of money and 
by all accounts, he was planning to to get rid of most of it anyway. So I'm quite sure that his foundational work and the philanthropy that he will do to change the planet will continue after his death and and will reflect, you know, a legacy that, you know, a lot lot of people don't get an opportunity to leave. Uh, So, you know, by all means, by all accounts, this was... um, a great man and an intelligent man and um you know an influential and world changing he had a perfect man. score he was he had a perfect score on his SATs yeah do you know how rare and difficult that is he he definitely was a, a genius and uh you know he had a huge impact on this planet yeah um so he's definitely going to be missed i was sad to see him go um you know, usually you see people, uh, a team owner or something, unless you're in that region, you don't, it's like, oh, that's a bummer, and then move on, and you don't think about it again. Paul Allen wasn't that person, you know. He was at the very forefront of what we think of as the, the technological marvels that we have today. A lot of that can be traced directly back to what he was doing. Just as strongly as anything that Steve Wozniak or Steve Jobs did. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and, you know I, that, that, that doesn't mean that he was, I don't want to sort of deify the guy. It doesn't mean he, he was a perfect man. Uh, no, of course not. Imagine and, and some of the things he did, like, don't get me wrong, he, he, he could spend money on himself when he wanted to. Yeah, uh, he had a giant yacht that was, you know, like the 10th biggest one in the world. Well, uh, the interesting story, an interesting story I heard about the yacht was that, um, First of all, he was a big, he was a, a really good guitarist. Apparently, idolized yep. Jimi Hendrix, um, and he and he re- released good good records, um, you know, quality blues rock records. It says here, um, and uh, yeah, respect. Really loved Eric Clapton and that sort of thing. Um, so apparently, on this yacht, he had a fully decked out recording studio with an engineer who was attached to it, who worked there all the time, just so that any time Paul felt like going down there recording something, he was able to do it. <laughs> You know, so uh, and and the, the yacht also that actually makes me like him even more, to yeah, be honest. But also, apparently, um, the yacht has a submarine, and the reason it had a submarine was that uh, he was a really avid diver, but he didn't like jumping into the water. Right. He had a he had a phobia of you know how diving. I know I've, I've got to be honest. I don't know much about diving. I've never understood why uh, people in scuba gear always seem to do that thing where they fall backwards off the boat. I'm sure there's a very good reason for it. But apparently he hated doing that. So he got he had the yacht fitted with the submarine so that when he wanted to dive, he could go out in the submarine and then just kind of go out through the bottom hatch without having to. <laughs> without having to um, fall into the water. So that's kind of, you know, a rich boy perk, really. They're right there. <laughs> yeah, and that's I don't have a problem with that no, either. No, I don't either. You know. If if I was that rich, I would have cool stuff like that. Why <laughs> yeah. not? I might have even cooler stuff, to be honest. Yeah. I'd have, I would have my own fully functioning arcade. Yep. That would have been bigger and better than any arcade you ever would have saw in the 80s. Yeah. Why? Because I'm rich, biatch. Uh, yeah, just to say, I, 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 I would have. I would have the. Sub- Why not? I would have the submarine, but mine would probably have torpedoes on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to have protection, David. So that is this episode of Tech Fan. Um, we'd love to get your feedback. Uh, it is the show at techfanpodcast.com. Best way to get a hold of us is email. Uh, we'll read your email just like we did Steve's on this one. 
Um, let us know, you know, anything we talked about. Are we wrong about the Apple TV? Or are we missing something obvious that you're like, you guys didn't even mention it does this thing, and that's why it's a game changer. Prove us wrong. Let us know. Um, any personal thoughts on Paul Allen? Um, we'd love to hear that as well. Yeah. Give us an email, the show at techfanpodcast.com. Of course, you can always go to mymac.com and techfanpodcast.com and simply leave a comment there as well. David, see you next week. See you then. Bye, everyone. <laughs>